thinking of, my mouth dropped because I was like, do you ever have those moments where you like think back on your sex inventory and you're like, fuck, <gasps> yeah, I totally. forgot about that person. <laughs> Right. And thank God April was like, you don't have to remember everybody. Cause I would just text her like in the middle of the day and be like, Oh, I remember this person. She's like, I don't, I, this is like, you don't need to, you don't need to do this. It's just about <laughs> the overall whole. So, um, that's so all funny. right. That's a nice little intro for this next episode. Um, um, so you want to, yeah, so over. when you said like, uh, can you talk about Kevin? I was like, which one? <laughs> So yeah, here we are. This is my friend, Natalie. Um, I'm not going to give Natalie any introduction, TBH, because we're going to talk about mental illness today. Uh, I will say that both me and Natalie are um, sometimes a bit fucked on the mental health side. (laughs) You got that right. So, um, but also like doing it really gracefully. And, um, I, I will say that Natalie is probably, she's someone that I definitely look up to and go to a, go to for advice and, um, just like all around stable. She's like, what did you tell me one day that I'm, sta- <laughs> she's stabilizing, but not stable. Cause I was talking about how I was talking to a guy and I was like, I'm like, I'm stable. And she was like, mm, you are stabilizing, but I don't know if you are stable. <laughs> Oh my God. I'm laughing so hard right now. I don't remember saying that, but having been reminded of it, I stand by it. (laughs) It's like me for other people. I can totally be grounded, but like also maybe be having a panic attack at the same time. Who knows? Literally. I just threw my sister her 40th birthday party and it was going amazing. And like everything was perfect. She was so happy. Granted, I have not, I have physically not stopped Oh, I, up until then I had not stopped going through like all this crazy transition. Um, and then it was like, man, at the end of the party, I was like, Oh, I'm getting this like out of body experience. Like I can't really breathe that well. And God. I can't form sentences. Like, and I was like, fuck, is it maybe something that's in this Moroccan mint tea? Like, am I being drugged right now? Like, is this what feel like have, did someone in my family roofie me? What is happening? It's a I'm, common vehicle for roofing. I'm kidding. That's never happened. Rock and minty. I'm sure it's happened at some point somewhere, but I don't think it, it's a, it's the go-to. Yeah. Right. And so I was like, maybe, maybe this isn't the Moroccan mint tea. And maybe this has all to do with how fucked your mental health has been underneath all of this, which is a good segue into like, you can have your shit together or look like you have your shit together. And you can also not look like you have your shit together and have like, just like mental health issues and just issues, like just issues as a whole. No one's perfect. I think I get down on myself a lot. Cause I'm like, fuck, why am I having this panic attack? I need to do better. I need to be better. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yes. And can you have some like self-compassion? That's even what you said to me the other day. Oh yes. I remember this. One of my favorite mantras is be nice to yourself because you can know that you need to do better. This is frequently where I land. I know that I need, that I need to do better. And I also know that like beating myself up about it, the self lacerating place that I go to normally doesn't actually help me do better. It just makes me feel worse. And then I get paralyzed and frozen and then I do worse. So yeah, yeah, I probably said something like, you know, be nice to yourself. It's true that this isn't going great, but you can be nice to yourself about it. That's my favorite mantra these days. You said something even more profound. You said, 
Like, why don't we change the narrative? Because saying that you're engaging in toxic behavior when really you just had a fuck ton going on in your life and things are kind of coming out sideways sometimes and you're doing the best you can and you're acknowledging what's going on and you're taking steps to fix it, you know? So, um, yeah, it's hard to remember when it's like one thing after another. So and 2021 was just nutso, man. Like I, I did this reflection on the beach I went to the beach the other day and you know, when you plan self, like self connection days and they're just like, yes. fucking lame. Like, I don't even, I don't even <laughs> feel like I connect with myself. This, I don't even know how to explain it. This was like the most, it was like, I don't know. Everything looked so beautiful. I felt like the sun, like the sun's energy was my energy. This is going to sound so fucking hippie, but like I got on this beach and I was just so connected to God. I was so connected to myself like I had so much self-respect and self-love for myself in this moment, guys, just keep this refrain to this was maybe four hours. Um, and like, I got it. It was like, all of a sudden I, I felt the impact of like how awful, how ugly, how painful and how beautiful and deep and connected and like how filled with sorrow, just every single fucking thing that makes life life is it's like, I felt, I just felt connected to, to something greater than me. It was all of a sudden, like, that's what it is. And that's why all this is so important. Um, that might've been very, it was just a very strong feeling. It felt like, it felt like bliss, but almost as if it hurt like so much bliss and so much appreciation that like it physically almost hurt. Like, wow. Yeah. Oh, I love that feeling. I know that feeling. I sometimes arrive there and it is so intense. Did I mention that I took acid to get there? I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh my God, that's a way better punchline than what I was going to say. <laughs> and most importantly, you looked beautiful. Oh, thank you. Oh my God. I'm the queen of fucking self-obsession these days. Selfies on selfies. You know what? As I like to remind you and as I have reminded myself in the past, that is pretty normal after a breakup of a long-term relationship. We're all just kind of like, how am I going to do out there? I look hot today. Yeah. You know, or even like dating someone new and then being like, you look hot today. And I'm like, okay, but like, is it hot enough? (laughs) You know, like, are you sure? I mean, I don't say that. Um, I have a sneaking suspicion that they wouldn't give you that compliment if it was like, (laughs) not across the hot enough threshold like you look hot today and they're secretly thinking but not hot enough <laughs> that's a fucked up compliment to yeah someone. no that's never happened it's always been very genuine and sincere uh, <laughs> but i'm just like what if it's not enough i got like <laughs> yeah, just, I, i'm trying to figure out how much i want to say here i got very um like ridiculous outfits to wear to hawaii guess how many swimsuits i have packed in my bag right now Twelve. 12 it's 12 swimsuits I know you so well (laughs) and one of them was like a Khloe Kardashian good American swimsuit that I balled out on and yeah that's her brand she yeah it's a good ass brand have you got their jeans before I've tried them on and decided I couldn't afford them but yeah yeah, it is great oh god the Kardashians own every brand I know I'm always like I'm not gonna try skims but then they look like they have really comfy stuff I haven't yet and I, I haven't skims. Oh, you do. What are your thoughts? I didn't know that they were Kim's, that they were Kim's skins. So I bought two bralettes because I had this top that I wanted that was kind of loose and I wanted to wear like a nice, cute little 
but not to in your face brawl it under it. Yeah. Like, this is perfect. And so I bought two of them and they were so comfortable. And then somebody mm. said, Oh, you know, that's Kim Kardashian's brand. And I went, No, but then I bought more because they're really great. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. They, um, yeah, she makes more than fucking the younger one. Not Ky- I want to say Kyrie Irving, which is a basketball player, Kylie Jenner. Probably more than Kyrie Irving makes too. <laughs> like, she makes close to a billion dollars. That's bonkers. Um, anyways, you wouldn't even be able to tell that we have mental health issues. I know. We're just talking about the Kardashians, like two completely normal people. Yeah, and just panic attacks and such. So I would like to... I, <laughs> I can't keep a straight face. <laughs> tell, me, tell me why you're emotionally fucked sometimes. What goes on in that little head of yours? Oh, wow. Or tell me, let me get more specific because that is very vague. Like what has been the catalyst for all of these emotions that have come up during this year? And I think it's important to talk about like the ebbs and flows of what that looked like and how it manifests specifically in you. And also like how you, how you cope, how you've been, how you've been vibing with the the feels. Thank you for that question. I think it's a great question. And I think, you know, one of the things you've captured in the question itself is just how much managing, you know, for me, my major, my major, you know, thing is, for lack of a better word, is depression. So managing depression, I think every once in a while, it hits me again, and it has to hit me again, because I never fully absorb the lesson forever. The depression is something that is managed that comes and goes, at least for me. And it never really goes away forever. Like you can have a nice respite from it, or I can have a nice respite from it, but it will always be something that I have to manage. So I guess maybe it would be helpful to offer some background. I have had depression, bouts of depression since I was around 17 probably even earlier, but I didn't recognize that that was what it was. I considered when I was a a young teen, my um, source of unhappiness to be almost fully external. Um, I was um, really, really severely bullied in school, in late elementary and early middle school. And I was really different. I was such a weird kid and I was obsessed with school and I was really competitive about school. And, um, you know, kids didn't like me. They really didn't like me. Um, I went to an all girl school, which honestly was like terrible for me socially. It was just a really bad environment. I think also it had a lot to do with the composition of my particular cohort. Like, it was, there were a lot of mean girls in my class. My sister who went to the same school a few years later had a great experience there. And all the girls in her class seemed like really nice girls. But I went to school with a bunch of piranhas. And I always felt like periodically despondently sad, just so like unhappy and alone and different. And I really just thought it was because people were mean. But then in high school, I think, I think you sort of end up with some more clarity about yourself. 
I had friends. I also had a couple of friends ditch me, but it sort of became really clear to me somehow that a lot of what was going on was coming from within and that it didn't really have a great explanation. Like I was probably working too hard at school. I was, you know, staying up super late, not sleeping enough, just trying to be the best student I could. And, um, I didn't leave a ton of time for myself to have a social life or, um, you know, or fun. Um, I was definitely burning myself out and all of these things certainly contribute, but I think there's just, you know, I've been diagnosed since with major depressive disorder. I, it's how I'm wired, you know, rock on indeed. Um, and you know, all the cool kids have major depressive disorder we're now seeing as adults. Dude, do you remember when I was at your house? I was like, I used to, I used to never understand like why people would ever think about leaving this planet. Like why, why would that ever happen? Like, why would they get to that point? And you would just kind of stared at me like wide eyed. And I was like, now I am one of those people, but I'm just saying <laughs> before I didn't understand. And now I do. Yeah. It's, it's really inconceivable. Honestly, even though I've had those feelings, which I'll get into in a second, many times before in my life, I still, some, when I'm doing better, I'm like, God, how did I get there? How are other people there right now? It's just, it's such a strange place that looks so weird and wrong when you're out of it. But when you're in it, it feels like the only thing that has ever existed. Are there any like, are there any themes? I'm sure you're going to talk more about this. Are there any like significant things that happen that just throw you into it? Or is it because a lot of people sometimes are just blind. It's like, what the heck? You're literally like your brain chemistry gets out of whack. But I'm just wondering, have you had any like triggers that pop up and you just sink? That's a good question. Certainly the answer is yes. I also think sometimes it is spontaneous in that sort of incomprehensible, just my brain is weird way. But I would say the most consistent like thought trigger is I'm stuck and this is how I'll be forever. Like there is no way forward for me. In my most recent episode, it was a lot of professional frustration. I lost my job in early, mid 2021. And I took a second to like, just gather myself. It was the wrong job for me. Um, But uh, it took me a second to gather myself and start making an effort to find new employment. But then once I did, I was so discouraged. I don't know if anybody out there is looking for jobs right now, but it is a weird landscape. And I hate networking. I hate promoting myself. Even the idea of working with a recruiter that I have to reach out to and ask for help is just, honestly, it gives me fear and that turns into paralysis. Is it like, are you afraid you're going to be shut down? Are you afraid of like putting yourself out there and getting rejected or like, what's the fear behind it? That's such a great question to ask out loud because I'm honestly not even sure I can answer it. I'm not even sure I can articulate the fear. I don't even, I don't know what it is specifically I'm afraid of. Maybe the scenario I'm imagining is that 
they laugh at me, but it's not even that clear of a, um, of a worst case scenario that I'm imagining. It's just, it's just sort of at this point, a very well-worn fear and shame circuit, just a reflexive feeling about it is fear that turns into paralysis. It's like my brain's mechanism of protecting me from fear and anxiety. Um, and that's really maladaptive. Um, it's, you know, a great thing to have for emergencies <laughs> so that I don't have, you know, so that I don't go into a total tailspin, uh, like an anxiety tailspin, but you know, it, um, you know, at times when I could be combating that depression by like actually disproving my negative beliefs about myself, building self-trust, moving forward with stuff, um, and preventing myself from falling into a really deep pit of depression. It prevents me from actually doing those things. So, um, to get back a little bit to my history with depression, my first like really severe depressive episode, uh, was when I was 22 and go for Sorry, it. I, I just want to clarify that um, Natalie is a drunk. She's a sober drunk through the program and totally. has depression. I should have made that clear in the beginning. This is about, this episode is about mental health on its own and how it coincides with alcoholism. Please continue. <laughs> yes. I am a drunk. I am uh, a re- retired for now drunk. Um, and I say for now, because while I don't anticipate ever drinking again, life is long and strange and, you know, you never know what can happen. All I have is today, but, um, yes. And my depression and sobriety slash alcoholism are very much connected. Um, and I'm definitely going to talk about that. Um, but my first major depressive episode was when I was 22. And interestingly enough, at that time in my life, I was dry. I was uh, taking a leave of absence from school to deal with a different chronic condition of mine that is not the depression, but that is certainly connected to the depression. And um, that condition is exacerbated by drinking. So um, I, just as an experiment, as like a control in trying to figure out how to treat this condition more effectively with my doctor, I quit drinking. But at that time, I did not think that I was an alcoholic. I mean, I was drinking the way everybody at school was drinking, which was to excess, but it felt like quite normal, which is why I'm actually always, this is a total tangent, but I'm always amazed at people who get sober in their early twenties or during college, like the way that people identify, oh, this is a problem. My drinking didn't feel like a problem to me at that time, but I quit it for this medical purpose. But because I wasn't seeking sobriety, I didn't have anything to replace it as, you know, a medicine for anxious thoughts or uh, a way of checking out of what felt like a really hard to direct and control life. You know, I had been this really intense star student in high school and in college, I just totally lost my bearings. I was like, this is too hard. I can't, trying doesn't even work here. So what's the point? And I totally checked out and I just wanted to be drunk a lot. And, um, 
but I was hanging out with people who lived exactly the same way. So I was dry for a year. And in that year, some weird things happened. I wasn't drinking, so I had a lot more clarity. I also had a lot more time to think about how unhappy I was and to tell myself really, really negative stories about why that was and why it was my fault. And, um, you know, I think the um, severity of what I was experiencing really hit me at that time. I went, oh my God, you've been instructed to take a leave of absence for school, ostensibly for medical reasons, but actually because of non-performance. Like that was my, that was the choice I was presented with. You really have to take a medical leave to deal with this and it will probably save your academic record. I had a long distance boyfriend who was, he was not always long distance, but at the time he was studying abroad. Um, And it was very clear that he was cheating on me. Um, And I had no, no skills to deal with that. Um, So um, I just went into this depression. Everything felt so out of my control. And I had um, just, uh, no way of coping with it. Um, because I had used alcohol previously. So all of a sudden the story that just kept coming through to me very vividly was you're fucked and you are just never going to get it together. And, you know, one way that I found that I was able to control things was by not eating. And that's where I developed, you know, an eating disorder. Um, I lost a lot of weight. I lost probably 25 pounds. I don't remember exactly at this point, but I, I was very, very, very thin. And my sister knew that I was starving myself. I think others did not. And my mom has this thing about weight. She always has a lot of women with eating disorders have like a specific, you know, sort of triangular relationship with their moms and with food. And, um, so I think it was fine because I was thin. Um, and then I think my mom started to notice that something was wrong, but this culminated in July of that year. So I'd been out of school for about six months and, um, everything just felt so hopeless. Like I knew that my then ex who had been cheating on me and had gotten together with the girl he'd been cheating on me with, um, was not coming back. Like that was over. Um, I put the nail in the coffin on it too, because when I found out that like he had, he had certainly been with somebody else, I like sent him this like expletive laden email about how disgusting she was and how disgusting he was and really not my finest moment. And I was, uh, hospitalized for depression. I attempted suicide effectively. I, 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 you know, I sort of buried the lead there and just like skipped to that, but I, I just, I, I guess I'll, I'll go over how I got there. That would be important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I attempted suicide. It was rough. Um, so I, I think, oh, actually, um, I just want to make sure I'm not spending too much time on something that happened 
you know, 13 years ago at this point, but, um, I will say quickly, I had an, a friend, I still have a friend, like a lifelong friend from elementary school who lives in this area. And, um, she and I were very close at that time and she went to school nearby. And so during my leave of absence from school, we were, um, we were just spending a lot of time together and she has a psychiatric condition that I won't go into here cause it's not relevant, but she was in a crisis during that time. And I, this is really sick. It's sort of codependent, but at that time that, and I was the only person that in her life, other than her parents and her doctor who knew about it, they, she really didn't want other people to know. So I spent a lot of time with her and I was really preoccupied by whether she was okay. You know, I think they talk about the identified patient, like in families or in friendships or in relationships. She was the identified patient in that relationship. And I don't even think I'm using that term correctly, but she had an issue. She was in crisis. I was there. I was going to be the person who made sure she didn't go into a tailspin. And ultimately she was hospitalized for this condition because it was so acute at that time. And I sort of breathed a sigh of relief. And I remember thinking, what now? My life is still nothing. It's still pointless. And then I was flooded with shame about how I had sort of you know, hidden in, man- in helping my friend manage this, how I had no direction. I really was, you know, I was, I had six months left in my leave of absence and I was dreading returning to school already. Um, I had started undergrad as a pre-med student. I had totally washed out of that. I was flooded with shame about that. Something that had happened years prior, like two years prior. And Um, everything became part of a negative story that I was telling myself. So I was seeing a therapist who I just didn't really feel like I could talk about this with. I mean, that's their job, but I just didn't really want to talk to him about this. I, I, I just wanted to be alone in my sort of depressive cave. And I also kind of felt like my family wasn't taking the impact of the breakup that seriously. They were kind of like, you're young, it's fine, you'll get over it. And I really felt like I wouldn't. Um, And I felt really alone. And then I just became sort of obsessed with this idea of no longer being here. Um, It wasn't that I wanted to actively, at first I didn't actively want to kill myself. I wanted to just not be around anymore. And it became sort of all consuming, this sort of desire to not be around. And then I thought, well, how could I actually make that happen? You know, could I make that happen? And so I did ultimately, it just became this sort of consuming thing. I wish I could go into more detail about like the moments leading up to that, but I won't primarily because I don't really remember. (laughs) I attempted suicide. Um, I am not going to say how, but, um, my, uh, parents found out and they were freaked out and they, um, called 911 and 
I was incredibly combative with the people who were sent, who were dispatched to see if I was okay. And I was hauled off to a psych emergency room, um, appropriate in retrospect. Um, but at the time I was really scared and really angry. And I really felt like there was nothing I could say in that situation to avoid that outcome. And, um, my, you know, the, the intake people at the psych ER, I was really hostile and ungrateful and just, um, sort of, uh, unreassuring to them. So I was 5150 and admitted. And then I ended up hospitalized for 10 days, um, which is, you know, not long, but not short. Um, it's longer than a 72 hour hold. Um, and I don't know in that setting, I think, you know, there was a psychiatrist there that I really connected with. There was a psychiatric nurse that I really, uh, connected with. I think it sort of drove home that I do have some say some control in my life. I just have to want to improve. And my, uh, psychiatric, psychiatric nurse sat me down when I was about to be discharged and said, um, you know, a lot of people have an experience like this and they spend their lives coming in and out of places like this. And you're really young and you don't have to do that. And I think I decided I didn't want that for myself. Um, so I left that setting. I was really thrilled to be home. I had made some progress in like, you know, family therapy. We're both crying. Just so you, <laughs> that's why, that's why the silence is. I looked up and I saw you crying and I was like, Oh no, no, I'm going to cry. Um, but I had made some progress with my family by having a third party there. Um, and so I was very excited to be back with them. And, um, and I started working with a new therapist who had to leave on maternity leave like three weeks later when we were finally starting to make progress. And she referred me to um, one of her colleagues who is still my therapist today, 12 years later. And um, yeah, and so for a while... I had this managed. I, I had never met a clinician like my therapist who really, really heard what I was saying and spoke my language and like sat in the cave with me and was like, wow, this is a pretty dark cave. You're right. When you're ready, we'll climb out together. Um, I still use that metaphor now because I find it to be really helpful for describing like what I need. Yeah. I can you say it again? Cause I, that's, I'd want to write it down. Oh yeah. It's, it's so, you know, when you're that depressed, you feel sort of like you're in a cave and I find a lot of people will sort of walk by the cave and be like, Oh wow, you're in that cave. What, what can I do to help you out? And you don't want to be pulled out. You want, or I want when I'm in that condition to just sit in it. And I want somebody to crawl into the cave with me and not make it about them, but just say, wow, yeah, 
this cave is really dark. But it's also kind of comfortable. I can see why you like it here. And it's also sort of a long way out. So we're just going to sit here for a while. And then when you're ready, I'll help you out of the cave. That's fucking beautiful. Mine was, um, oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. I like my, I was actually just talking to my therapist about this last night because this has stuck with me in terms of like the shithole this past year and me now being in such a good place, the best place that I've ever been in. When I was like suicidal, I, I, I was like, Jen, I don't, I will never get out of this. Like I was so terrified and just like grasping on to like a shaky ladder to get out of the cave, but it just wasn't working. And she was like, what if you just took a minute? Like, what if you just sit, sat in it? What if you just felt what it would feel like to sit in this deep, deep, deep depression? instead of trying to fight your way out of it. And I used that again last night when I saw her. She's like, yeah, like that's, that's what you have to do. I mean, there's no fighting getting out of it. You know, you have to feel those feelings, but also like you need help, you know, like you have, you have to have the support and the system and the structures to help you get there. And the fucking medication. If I wasn't medicated, like, I don't know, I might be fine now, but medication was a huge part of why I was able to get out of that. Oh, enormous. Yeah. I should add part of what happened in that setting um, during my hospital stay was that I got put on an antidepressant that worked better for me. Um, It's an SSRI, big whoop, you know, big, big ups to SSRIs. Um, I'm a big fan. Uh, And, you know, that's sort of the type of antidepressant that I'm limited to because my other condition um, sort of uh, different types of antidepressants aren't great for patients with my other, you know, comorbid condition. So, um, but this works great. I've been on it since. Um, and, um, and help having the right therapist who really wants to be there. I've gone to therapists who just sort of sit there and they look bored and they tell you time's up literally the second the second hand hits the hour and they're they're like yeah it sounds like this I had a therapist when I first got out of rehab and just needed so I just needed a therapist and I I left her because it was I just didn't feel comfortable she wasn't helping she would just stand there and look at me and I told her I'm sorry I can't continue these sessions and she called me and left me a voicemail saying I just want you to know as a professional that you are someone who's always going to need therapy and you need help and you need to get it right now. And as a clinician, I just think that you should know. And I was like, Oh, I'm fucked. And then I found, uh, through my sponsor, actually, I found this woman who was just so divinely guided, like came at it with love and love and kindness, understanding, like no judgment. I just, I've always had so much fear around like me not being good enough not lovable, this like deep, deep, deep feeling ingrained in me that I'm bad and I'm inherently bad. And to have someone hold that space and just like fully accept me and see me for all, all the good that I am, you know, and hold space for those feelings that like, I fucking hate myself. You know, like I I have felt every single thing that I could feel in that room with her and to go through it slowly. Like there's no uh, rush. Like if I was rushed through it, um, recently, like someone had suggested I do like this other really deep work 
um, called IFS. And I, like, I just don't think I'm ready because I, I still need to go slow right now. Like yeah. it was slow in, it was slow out of this, like little bits and pieces and it's working because here I am not suicidal, happiest I've ever been. That is so great. I'm so glad that you are in touch with what you need, the pace you need to go at and that you're honoring that and that your therapist is in touch with that as well. And, and respecting that and letting, you know, taking cues from you on what you're ready for. Yeah. Um, because rushing through these feelings just doesn't, for me, it has never worked. Um, you know, the, I love what you said about, uh, not being good enough. It's such a depressive sort of catch 22. Like I have deep feelings about being inadequate. I should probably go to therapy. Will I talk to the, to my therapist about these feelings? No, because I'm afraid they won't think I'm good enough. I mean, I've, even with this wonderful therapist that I've been seeing for 12 years, I go through cycles of that where should I tell this person the truth about this? And the answer is yes. I read something in like an advice column, I think seven years ago that said, people who lie to their therapists might as well throw their money directly in the garbage. And it really stuck with me. So. Absolutely. Yeah. I think a huge reason why. So I relapsed last February. I'm coming up on a year in, oh my God, is it the eighth? No, I'm coming up on a year. So yeah, relapse in February. And then I was like, it took me to the bottom. And at that point, like I had to be honest, it was like, I finally felt like I was worthy enough to do sobriety on my own. And I told my sponsor what had happened. She surrounded me with love and kindness and support. Then I went to the rooms, the women helped me with love and kindness and support. And it was just this heavy realization. If I do not show up with honesty in every aspect of my life, but mainly when it concerns like, I don't know how to phrase this, all aspects of my life, but I don't want to shy away from all the really hard stuff because it's always going to be there. doesn't mean I have to tackle it all at once. doesn't mean that I have to um, like be superwoman, but it just gave me this, this surrender, like a newfound surrender that if I just fucking collapse, which I did and became suicidal in sobriety, mm-hmm. um, but I was honest about it. Like I saw it through and that's kind of like what has kept me going this I think this past year is just the deep rooted honesty and showing up really fucking messy you know and um having all the fears I broke up with I had a six-year-long relationship that ended I was super depressed got a new job got a new apartment my sponsee died like that it's just been so much all at once and I don't think coupled with medication (laughs) If I wasn't showing up and trying to experience it all in an honest way, I would have been able to make it through. Honestly. Yeah. I think you're so right about honesty. It is really a form of magic that I feel like I discovered only three years ago because as um, an alcoholic, I, I many of us have a penchant for dishonesty. We're very good at it. Um, and I was a person for a long time who lied periodically to my therapist. You have been through, gosh, you have been through so much this year. Bro. And to hear you say, it's nuts. To hear you say, honesty, like grounded, being grounded in honesty has gotten me through that. That just rings so true. And it is such a testament to the importance of 
honesty with yourself, with the people around you? I wouldn't have been able to leave. I mean, like, I'd, out of respect to him, I'm sure people who listen know him. Um, I wouldn't have been able to show up and share my truth with this person had I not completely unraveled and was honest with myself about where I'm at, what I need and who I am, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And because of that, all these beautiful things have unraveled. I have this fucking incredible job that I didn't even think I would ever get like this beautiful studio and a pink couch. The studio is incredible. It's like, it's basically a one bedroom, like a junior one bedroom. It's wonderful. It's fucking incredible. And, um, yeah, some other little gifts. Yeah. It's, um, so I, I try at this point to make it a policy to be honest with my therapist, which again, sounds like a lot of people will hear that and go, yeah, duh. But a lot of people will hear that and go, Oh, absolutely. Especially, you know, people who are perhaps, um, listening because they are looking to get sober. I mean, one of the things, and I, I will talk about um, sobriety in a minute, but one of the things that appealed to me about um, sobriety and our sobriety community is that I was meeting people who used to lie the way I did. I went, oh my God, it is so liberating to be honest, but also to be honest about lying. Um, Cause the lie is worse than the thing you're hiding. Like people are so freaked out by lying. Um, and that ends up trapping or it ended up trapping me in lies for really long periods of time. And, um, and that definitely doesn't help. It definitely doesn't help. But having people who hear you say, Oh my God, I lied about the craziest thing. I'm so sick. You probably don't want to know me anymore now. And they just sort of sit there and laugh in your face and go, yeah, okay, cool. I'm glad you're not doing it now. Um, and here are the tools to not do that. And here are my experiences. And it's 10 yes. times worse than whatever the fuck you did. Totally. It's, it's incredible. It really is a type of magic. Yeah. Um, I mean, and the hard part about being, I mean, thank God for this program for, I mean, it forces you to be as honest as possible. But like when you're honest, it, you're completely vulnerable. It's, take away like the lying about stuff, but just like the not being truthful to you, not being open to help, like not, not fully opening up yourself. That's dishonest. And I think that's probably like the biggest part of dishonesty that leads to, oh my God, I'm going to fucking kill myself. Totally. It's definitely the most self-injurious form of dishonesty, right? I mean, what does that mean? Uh, uh, oh, uh, like harmful to yourself. Yeah. Oh, like, yes. It, I was thinking like a jury. I'm like, the fuck? <laughs> what, what do you mean? Self <laughs> like other types of dishonesty will harm relationships with other people, which of course are harmful yeah. to us as well. But not being honest about where we are and what we're experiencing is, is very harmful to us as well. And I think we don't see it because we're trying to avoid shame. We're trying to, whatever we're trying to do, it's just such a losing, a losing game. Um, in the interest of honesty, I will say that once I started working with this therapist, things didn't all get perfect. I just felt like I was developing tools to manage challenging things. I did go back to school and I can't say that I sailed through it at that point. I still had a lot of weird shame issues, a lot of weird stuff going on with my self-image as a student. Um, 
it ultimately, I had a year left of school and it took me three more years to finish. I took, not all of that was active, that being actively in school. Um, I wasn't entirely honest with my therapist at that time about my progress through school um, or with anyone else in my life, um, to be perfectly frank. Um, and, you know, sort of importantly, when I went back to the East Coast to finish school, I had, you know, I didn't really talk about my eating disorder. I'll sort of, we can talk about that perhaps another time if, if you'd like, but I, um, suffice to say that I had managed that and was recovering from that. Um, things looked pretty good. And I went back to the East Coast for school and I resumed living exactly as I had been. So the drinking, the staying up too late, the not taking care of myself. And everybody I knew at that point was of age. So we were all staying out at bars until like three in the morning, you know, every night of the week. And I really liked being drunk. I'm curious to know, um, like between that time and to when you got sober, I know that you've mentioned um, you can, you can discuss in detail what this is, if you're comfortable with it. I don't know if it's, um, you doing a job that was like, that was the fucking happiest I've ever been. And you finally oh, felt yes. embodied. And totally. what other experiences you had like that leading up to where you are now? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, I ended up staying, I did end up finishing school out there. I stayed in that city entirely too long, but for a few years after I finished school. Um, and then I moved back to California in, um, or five years ago at this point. And, um, I, you know, I worked, I had plans to go get an advanced degree. Um, and then one year I decided to take a detour from those plans. I was still drinking a lot. I was drinking constantly. And I had this made this promise to myself when I lived on the East coast in a city where I didn't have to drive to get home. Um, that if I ever lived in a place where I had to drive home at the end of the night, I would not drink the way that I did out there. But it turns out, uh, when you're an alcoholic, it's very hard to decide when to stop drinking. And I, I say this a lot, but I had this experience of being like, God, I just can't stop getting wasted and driving home. What's that about? Like what? I don't, that's such a tricky thing. Why can't I do that? Um, I, God, I had so many nights where I just woke up and thought, how did I get here? And how did I not get arrested? I'm super lucky, um, is all I can say. Um, and also various forms of privilege working for me, I would imagine were active. Um, and you know, I decided to take this detour from my plans for, um, uh, graduate school, professional school. And, um, in college I had developed an interest in baboons. So I went to Tanzania and participated in a study of 
evidence um, for several months. And I was, it was the most blissful time in my life. I went to bed really early because I was super tired at the end of the night. I woke up really early. It was really, really magical. And I didn't drink at all. And I think because I was able to not drink for that time, I felt like, oh, I don't have a problem with drinking. I, it, it fooled me into thinking, well, I can stop any time. Clearly, I just did. But um, I, you know, the best explanation I can come up with for why that worked well is that I, it was really like a spiritual experience. Um, and, um, I think like, I think, I think the spiritual experience with like depression and Alcoholics Anonymous mental health issues, both, I mean, both require a level of like these, these moments of happiness, like a desire, a connection to something greater than yourself, like this spark, this God, this higher power. So like, that makes sense that you're there and that's, that's what came through. Absolutely. That's only sort of a hypothesis I was able to come up with too, after I got sober, when I realized that what was probably keeping me sane in the absence of alcohol there was this connection that I had to uh, something bigger than me, uh, which manifested in like just incredible beauty and how small I felt. And you really get a sense watching any kind of animal that like the human drama that we get so obsessed with is not the point. Um, and I, I loved that. I love feeling small. It turns out for me, that is the way out of depression. Um, and I'm really glad that I have that knowledge because it really helped move me through um, this most recent bout that I had. Oh, yeah. Tell us about um, So when I came back, I felt lost. That was, oh my God, three years ago now. And, um, you know, it's not even really worth getting into like all the stuff that happened. I wouldn't even identify myself as depressed during those days. I think I was just aimless. I was so aimless and so drunk that I, I didn't even give myself time to feel depressed. Um, I ruined a relationship with somebody great, um, with dishonesty. Um, I ruined a long-term friendship of mine with dishonesty. Um, my other condition was sort of, um, unmanaged again. And I decided, you know what, I'm, I'm, this is alcohol is again, a problem here. So I'm going to cut down on my drinking. And I noticed that I couldn't, like, I couldn't just drink less. It wasn't going to work. Something really mysterious happened to me where if I had one glass of wine, that was it. I was going to drink the rest of the night and fall asleep with a glass of something in my hand. And that really freaked me out. So I stopped drinking entirely. I said, I don't know what this means, but I'm just a person who can't drink or she's going to drink everything. I don't know what we call that, but that's, uh, that's what I am, I guess. 
And so I spent two and a half weeks not drinking, but not really doing anything of value to fill myself with purpose. Um, and, and I lost my mind again. Like it was so crazy how fast my eating disorder came just knocking on the door. It's right there. Hey, here's a way you can control your chaotic and directionless life right now. Um, and, um, and so I started seriously restricting my food intake. I started working out for hours and hours a day. And one evening I came out of a spin class and I knew that if I didn't go drink something, I was going to work out until I fell down when I got home. And I was feeling really desperate and scared. And then I realized I was right outside of a place where they do AA meetings literally from dawn till 11 at night. And that's fucking crazy. I didn't know that. Oh yeah. That's what happened. That's how I walked into my first AA meeting. I was, I was just honestly a God shot before I ever even believed in an entity called God. And, um, so I decided that this was a really strong sign of something. And I walked in to my first meeting half an hour later. And um, it was frankly kind of bleak. Like I, I think there was this one woman there whom I will never forget. And if she had not been there, I don't know that I would have come back. But she had me sit right next to her and she was really kind and we read this thing that, you know, this text that we read at the end of some meetings called a vision for you. And, um, I really wanted to, I wanted that, or actually, no, I think it was the ninth step promises. And I wanted that. Um, and, and I started crying, which is nothing new. I cry all the time now. It's great. But um, I, I cried all the time before. But now it's like, oh, I get why I'm crying. And I don't feel as much shame about it. And I was told to go to another meeting the next day. So I did. And another meeting the next day. So I did. And then before I knew it, I no longer wanted to destroy myself. And I had been not drinking without wanting to destroy myself for like three weeks. And I was making friends who wanted to play Jenga and just drink seltzer with me on a Saturday. And um, I was meeting other people who were recovering liars, which again was like incredibly powerful for me. And, you know, um, I just felt like, okay it started to make sense that alcohol had been sort of something I was self-medicating with. I think this is true for a lot of people who abuse alcohol or who are alcoholics. Um, it's, it's something that we give ourselves to feel less bad and to feel like life is less chaotic and like we can control things a little bit better. Um, and, but I didn't have anything to replace it. So one of the really magical things about AA is you're working a spiritual program as we call it. And you have a lot of other things that fill you with purpose and understanding that are not 
alcohol or alcohol didn't really fill me with understanding, but it made me feel like I didn't care about understanding. It was just whatever, you know? And I found myself just, you know, that we had this idea that you do the next right thing. And the next right thing is never to lie. So I didn't lie anymore. And that was, that itself was so, so magical. That sounds really sick, but like, it was so powerful. It was such a powerful thing. Um, and you know, I don't have relapse in my story yet. Um, and I think at that time, I just felt like this is, this is working. I don't know why, but it's working. I'm going to keep doing it. I'm going to keep not drinking. I have had moments where I thought, am I really an alcoholic? Could I really not have one glass? But then I think I have all this from not drinking and I'm going to keep doing that because I want to keep feeling this way. So I also felt this is sort of, this gets back to the depression, but I also felt like my program was dovetailing with all the therapy I'd had. I felt like I had years worth of tools from therapy that I just like was misapplying or I just didn't even really know how to use them. Like I would sit with my therapist at that point, right before I got sober and say, yeah, I guess I can do this thing we're talking about, but I don't, I don't really know how. And then I get off the phone with him and or off of Zoom, we've been on Zoom for a long time, um, and just totally lose my nerve and be like, how do I even do that? Like, how do I even make that work for me in this situation? And all of a sudden, it was like, I was putting the right widgets in the right widget holes with my therapy tools. It was like, oh, this is how therapy works when you're not hungover all the time. And when you're not in a shame spiral from being dishonest with everybody in your life, like things just get a lot simpler when you're doing these things, you get to actually use the things you're learning. And that felt like honestly a superpower, a, a magic power that I had. And during that first year, I said, I don't think I'm actually depressed. I think I've just been drinking myself into feeling sad for years. And I sort of, you know, felt some compassion for my younger self because that's a really sad thing to think you've realized about yourself. Like, wow, I, I could have. All right. And for some people it's true. Like they yes. were, they were drinking themselves to death. Therefore they are depressed, but motherfuckers will tell you not to take antidepressants because they think they know your mental state. And that is just absolutely fucked because if I didn't and you didn't, we would still be suicidal. Oh yeah. Like it, it goes further. These are hand in hand. A lot of the times people have mental health issues. They use alcohol to cope. So if anybody tells you to not fucking take your meds, I don't know, throw your, throw your meds at them be like, you stupid bitch. (laughs) Throw the big book at them. Throw the big book at them. It says nothing about not taking your fucking prescribed medications from a psychiatrist. Sorry. It really doesn't. Your doctor knows what's up. And also psychiatrists, I have, you know, I have close acquaintances who are psychiatrists and mental health professionals, and none of them have anything negative to say about AA. They're not like, oh, don't do that. That's quackery. They're like, it works somehow. It, it, It works really well. So freaking keep doing it. You know, AA, you will hear people say, 
don't do that. Don't take that stuff. It's snake oil. It's like, if you heard the way mental health professionals talk about you, you would, I think, really regret saying that because they actually have great things to say about what we do here. And like, it comes from a state of ignorance. Like, okay, good for you, Sandy. You haven't wanted to kill yourself. Like, fucking solid. I'm glad that this was just you drinking out of the bottle. Some of us have actual problems, Belinda. Wow, Sandy and Belinda. Are you going to believe out their names? Fuck those people. No, they don't actually exist. Thank oh, God. Got it. These are pseudonyms. Um, so, yes. I, uh, yeah, so I... I thought, wow, I, I am doing great. I still saw my therapist, but I just felt like all of a sudden, like I'm doing great. I'm getting an A. I'm getting an A in sobriety. I'm getting an A in managing depression. And, you know, my psychiatrist, I talked to my psychiatrist about this. I said, I don't think I need antidepressants anymore. And he said, you might not. So let's see how it goes without them. Fuck, I, did I didn't know that. And then wait, did it get bad after that? Oh yeah. But it took a second. <laughs> yeah. It took about a year. The pink cloud, honestly, the pink cloud is real. The pink cloud, for those who don't know, is what we call this like sort of state of ongoing state of elation that you experience in, you know, early days of sobriety. It can last a few days. It can last a few years. It comes and goes. But it is this feeling that all of a sudden I understand how to live and like, wow, you're just it's like a state of sort of low grade chronic ecstasy about this, like the answers you've found. Mine and never fucking happened. Maybe now. Maybe now. The whole time and like, didn't know that I had major depressive disorder. <laughs> it probably, you probably have little ones. Like what you said about your new year's Eve or your, your new year's day sounds like, a, like a short term pink cloud. Yeah. I think a lot like for my pink cloud, I would say before I relapsed was just like ego. It was just ego. It was like ego pink cloud. Yeah. I think that's a good point. Mine was probably ego too, because there was a part of me that was like, I'm so good at this, which. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I started this fucking podcast at a year sober and I was like, this is going to change. And then it has changed the world. Actually, there's been, I fucking got my sponsor through this. That was great. I will show you the way. And my way is like, don't kill yourself, please. <laughs> like my way now compared to my way then was like, fucking don't kill yourself. Go to therapy. Men are trash. And you're just a bag of human flesh who knows absolutely nothing. So consult everybody before you make a decision. <laughs> and try and have some sex. <laughs> That's the big secret. Go to therapy. Don't kill yourself. That's it. Right? That's all we got. Um, Sorry, I'm realizing I'm like chewing into the microphone. So if this sounds really gross, it's because I'm eating dried mango. I'm like squelching. Oh, it. <laughs> dried, I'm jealous. Dried mango is great. I wish I had some right now. How to keep your um, listeners engaged 101. <laughs> so, yeah, we, uh, what happened next? Um, you got depressed. Yeah, I, Fuck. <laughs> I got really depressed. So, so yeah, I, my first year the end of my first year coincided with the arrival of this thing we all know as the coronavirus. And, um, I had these plans for myself, uh, that kind of got destroyed when that arrived. Um, did we become friends that year? Was it, was it this year? 
we became friends. We started to become friends. I mean, I developed like a friend crush on you over Zoom. Mm. Um, and then I think we became actual friends this year. Wow. This year has been so fucking long. I know. It feels like we've been friends for a really long time. Or, or this is really sweet and it feels like we're soul bonded and that's really sweet. But I think it's also this year has been really fucking long. <laughs> it's both. It's both. Yeah, 2021 took a really long time and also flew by. I mean, yeah. one of the paradoxes of COVID. Um, but yeah, it ruined my plans. Everything went remote. And um, a lot of things I had planned for myself became totally pointless in the age, especially at the beginning when everything was like, oh, you know what? My laptop is about to die, so I'm going to plug it in. When everything was so uncertain we thought like okay i hope this is over in two months <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know? um and um yeah and i felt really uncertain i think one of the gifts of sobriety was starting to feel like i had a direction like i felt like i really didn't know what i was doing with myself like i had these plans and i was doing stuff with my life but i felt like what to what end I don't even know what I want it I don't even want to what I want this for and I suddenly felt like I was able to make plans like I had a vision and a purpose and I was making plans and then coronavirus hit and I was like oh man and I do this thing and I think a lot of depressives do where maybe not a lot maybe this is a me thing but I definitely do this thing where something comes and disrupts my plans and I, I say, I need a second. And then I totally take it as a, an excuse to just like languish and do nothing. And, um, or I don't know, I freeze. I just freeze. Um, I'm not very good at making plans for myself and, you know, advocating for myself in such a way as to realize them. And so, and this sounds really childish, but when I had done that, I thought, okay, things are finally going my way. And okay, no, they're not. Yeah. And like, I did everything right. I did everything right. And it's not working. It's not fair. Yeah. And <laughs> so I'm 33. Oh my God. I'm, I'm not 33. I'm almost 35. I was going to say I'm 33 years old folks, but I will be 35 in a few weeks. So, wow a lot of 2020 was spent in just sort of an emotional tantrum. Um, I kept doing the thing I was doing, which was fine, but I felt really like lost about what was going to happen next. That was, and, and now I'm thinking I'm doing the math on this and like, it's crazy that I just kind of was like that for, for two years. Um, and it, and there were ups and downs, but it culminated in, um, this incredible depressive episode. So at this point I was back on antidepressants. I think I got back on antidepressants about a year in when I realized that the pink cloud alone was not going to do it. I still am prone to depression. I have depressive episodes and antidepressants help with that. So I, and that was fast. It wasn't a hard decision. I wasn't like, Oh my God, if I do this, then I'm not sober. It was like, Oh, turns out I still need these. So I was back on antidepressants, but in October of uh, actually September of this year um I 
just got into this place of directionlessness and purposelessness again. And, you know, I'd been looking for a job for a few months and um, felt really at a loss about what I was doing wrong. And, you know, I think for me, the biggest thing is just these negative stories I tell about myself. Um, I started having these like really hostile conversations with myself. Like this, you're, this is your life, man. This is who you are. This is where you're going to be. This is where you're going to be. And like, you could do something differently, but you don't do anything differently. I think, I think there's this part of the narrative that's like, you can do better, but you're not gonna, cause you never do, you know? Um, and there's this, um, there's this, uh, promise in the ninth step promises, those feelings of worthlessness and self-pity will disappear. And they had completely returned. And I was like, Oh, that's bullshit. And I just kind of felt at that point, like meetings were just not doing it you know, step work wasn't doing it. I was like, this does not work anymore. It just doesn't work. That's not, it's not for me, like sponsorship, helping somebody else. I don't, I don't, I can't do that right now. I can barely get out of bed. And, um, and I really stepped away from it, which of course doesn't help. It makes it worse. Um, so, uh, yeah, there was a period of about, I want to say like, six, but it might've been more like 12 weeks where I wasn't really going to meetings. I was not calling other people and I was talking to my therapist, but I don't know that I was really communicating with him about like effectively about how poorly I was doing. Um, I should add that one of the like miraculous things about getting sober was I noticed myself wanting to defend myself from harm for the first time ever, like in my whole adult life. Like I felt like I had spent so many years just feeling like very indifferent to my safety in my life. I had sort of felt like eh, if something took me out right now, that would be fine. Same. And I, it's, it's wild how just eh, had a good run, like, and how normal that feels when, when you're harming yourself every day. Um, and how like, we're just, I'm so concerned about like, oh man, I had caffeine too close to bedtime. Like this is going to fuck up my week, you know? <laughs> yeah. Now we actually like care about sleep and safety and health. It's, it's bananas. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And I felt about 45 days in, like I, I found myself locking my car doors at a red light in the suburbs. Cause I was like, Oh my God, somebody's going to jump into my car and stab me. And then I'm going to die. And it would really suck to get murdered. I still I don't like, get that. Remember when I was like, it's fine. We can leave the door unlocked. And you're like, bro, you scream that outside the door. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. I, I do remember that. That was pretty funny. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, the self-preservation instincts will kick in at some point, but I, I hope, or maybe they won't. Maybe that's just, maybe that's just you. But, uh, it felt amazing to just suddenly be, to have fear of dying. Um, and, and I think one of the most alarming things about this depressive episode was that I felt myself not being afraid of dying again. I felt, I didn't, and I found myself 
wanting to die, but not wanting to do anything about it. I think the difference this time was that I didn't want to want to die. Yeah. I wanted to be better. I wanted to feel excited about my life. I wanted to start making an effort again. I just felt like I didn't know how. Yeah. And my therapist and I had gone through this phase where he was, I think he was trying something different. He was trying to move me faster through it. He was like, you're stuck. This is an important moment for you professionally. And like, you really just need to try harder. You just need to try harder. And that didn't work for me because it felt like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Okay, 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 okay. I'm going to fail. I'm going to fail. I'm going to fail. And I kept, it felt inevitable that I would fail with that approach because it felt like, well, I'm not going to do it today. So I'm just definitely not going to do it. And why am I setting myself up to fail? So one thing I did, another thing I did differently during this depression was that the, the moment I found myself thinking about killing myself or thinking about just not being around anymore, I emailed him and I said, Hey, I don't think this approach we've been taking for the past month or so is working. This is where I'm at. I'm not going to hurt myself, but I want to. And, um, I just think you should know that because, uh, I don't really want to feel like that. I've been there before. I don't, I don't want to be back there again. Um, and at the same time, I was still isolating myself. I didn't answer calls for like 10 days. You texted um, me. I texted you. I didn't want to talk to people from program who would advise me to write a gratitude list or call my sponsor <laughs> or call a newcomer or go to a meeting or like do any of these things. Because again, at the end of the day, the big book is amazing. Program is amazing. It's amazing, but it doesn't do it all for me. Like I really wanted to talk to somebody who understands that like, this is not my spiritual malady. This is the brain chemistry part of what I experience. Yeah. This This is a different part of my disease. Like this is not just that I'm not putting in enough gratitude hours and I'm not meditating. I'm not praying enough. Like this isn't that. Yeah. It might've helped a little bit, but, but I was like, this is, this is a neuro thing. Like this is something totally different. Um, and I, I talked to you and I talked to a couple of other people, but I really like sort of shut down. Um, and then you know, recalling that sort of small feeling I had that has like really been powerful for me before. One day I just felt sick of that. So I got off the couch where I had been watching just like garbage reality television for weeks and eh, for a couple of weeks. And I got up and I said, I want to go to the California Academy of Sciences and look at early human skulls. That just felt really important that day. So I went and I looked at all these old skulls of, and I was especially moved by the ones from early human species that went extinct, that did not become the direct ancestor of any being that is alive today, but that are cousins of our direct ancestor. I'm also really moved by like the mystery of what that was. Like, who was that? We don't actually have the identity of you know, the ultimate direct ancestor. It's some, something out there. It's, it's a 
topic of debate, but we don't really know what it is. We do know there are some things that we know existed near um, whatever, whatever being that was that like just couldn't adapt for whatever reason. And I think like looking at those skulls makes me think, I sound like such a weirdo. I'm like, I wanted to die when I looked at skulls. I'm not metal at all, guys. I just, I just like skulls, early human skulls. Um, and I, is that even a metal thing? Like, that's how not metal I am. I'm just like, yeah, no. it's like, that's metal, but I'm not metal. Like actual metal people will be like, this person is such a square. Um, <laughs> is that even like a metal insult? I'm going to stop talking about this. So, uh, but I was really moved by this idea of like, what did they think about? Like what, uh, they had so many challenges and these beings were animals as we are, but they were animals who like probably were starting to develop a sense of purpose, you know, like a cat, my cat doesn't have a sense of purpose. He's just like, feed me, pet me, pay attention to me. Let's sleep. Let's poop. Let's eat. You know, he doesn't have, he's not looking out, you know, across the hallway and going, God, why am I here? He's just a cat. And but humans at some point developed this ability to be like, huh, what is all this? Like, you know, I've talked to my dad about this. I said, do you ever wonder who the first human was who like asked why we're here? And my dad looked at me like I was a crazy person. My dad doesn't like to think about these abstract things. He's like a very practical, successful guy who's like, why would you spend time thinking about that? And he was like, they probably had more pressing concerns. <laughs> I said, yes, sometimes. But if you think about it, if you're a hunt, if you're a hunter gatherer, you just need to get enough food for a day or two. And then you have a lot of time because you don't have a job. Your whole job is to find food. And so once you've done that, you have a lot of time to like, I mean, you spend a lot more time cooking and stuff at the point where, you know, we started cooking, but like you, you spend, and you spend more time finding food, but like you still, I think on balance end up with more hours to just like wonder about stuff. So, um, I don't know. I think I just thought about like what that would feel like. And, and yeah, they did have more pressing concerns. And I thought, here I am with all this time to just think about like, why am I here? I can't find an answer. Like, I should just not exist. Like, what a luxury. What a luxury to be able to think that. And then I went to the planetarium. If you need a quick, a quick kick out of a day of depression, go to the planetarium and like think about the other solar systems that were born only 10 million years ago, because that is a bonkers like we are so small and also soon like pretty soon in the scale of the universe life will not actually be possible anywhere in the known universe life is not even the point like what is the point I could go on about this forever (laughs) (laughs) then I got home and I was like you know what I'm gonna watch a half hour YouTube video about the inevitable heat death of the universe and I was like this is working So I started going back to meetings and the thing is that meetings helped. They helped me pull me more up the ladder, but like I couldn't even reach for the ladder without going and looking for some skulls. Yeah. Upping my antidepressants, thinking about the heat death of the universe. I worked walks 
I watched so many of these YouTube videos. Like if you need some interesting videos that will make you, that will put everything in context, Melody Sheep on YouTube makes all these like weird videos about this. And they're really like fun and, you know, well-produced with music and voiceover and all this. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I watched a lot of that and it got me out of wanting to die. And that made it possible for, because one of the trickiest things about depression is you're just, you know what you need to do to get out of depression. But when you're really low, you can't even do those things. Yeah. The tools are on a shelf. You cannot reach from your position in the cave to go back to the cave metaphor. But you reach for uh, the tools. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so you need something to, you need a stool. Uh, and um, you need a stool to get the tools. And so um, that was my attempt at a rhyme. So I, uh, I found my stool, I grabbed the tools, and then I slowly and patiently, 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 once I told my therapist that like this was make, help, this was not helping, he was like, oh no, I don't want you to want to die. Let's do something else. So we took a slower, more compassionate approach. So I, I guess all I'll say is that I connected with somebody during that time who was in the same place, finding that program really wasn't working. And I, it wasn't the whole picture. Yeah. They needed more. And honestly, like that helped pull me out of my depression. Just having somebody who was in a cave too. We were in like a network of caves and I was like shouting down the tunnel to this other person. And we were just like, ha, ah, here we are in the cave. And then I climbed out doing some slow work. I got back into program and I started, you know, working differently with my therapist. I really wanted to climb out. And this person didn't. I think the connection was sort of like it lit the cave for them temporarily, but I don't know that they want to climb out. And, um, and I guess the only reason I mentioned that is that it really drove home for me how important it was to, to want to climb out and how, how grateful I am for that, because that is something that I have because of sobriety, the desire to not be depressed and to not want to die is a gift of sobriety. Um, and it's because I'm working this program. Um, and you know, I, so I'm, I'm still not doing a great job on step work, but I'm back in meetings. I'm back in fellowship and taking a slow approach for me is really, really crucial. Um, because my depression is still there. It's not like knocking on the door. It's a few blocks away. Yeah. But, um, and I would say that it's more of a threat to my well-being at this moment in time than cravings for alcohol or a desire to check out with drugs or alcohol. Um, that doesn't, even when I was depressed, I wasn't like, I should just drink. That, that wasn't how I felt. That, that's not how it manifested for me. It just felt like, oh God, here I am again. Nothing's worth anything. 
that is, and you know, so that was a couple months ago at this point, and I still get intensely sad, but depression isn't, I mean, I think a lot of most listeners know this, but you know, depression isn't sadness. It's not intense sadness. It's just apathy. Apathy. Exactly. It's purposelessness and meaninglessness and like the inability to feel anything. Yeah. So feeling sad, even intensely sad is such a green flag. Like I'm doing something right. When I felt grief, I was like, this is awful, but at least I have a <laughs> This is awful. I know, but like, hey there. <laughs> hey, grief. What's hey, up? Hey, grief. Let's cuddle up. It's better than feeling nothing. Yeah. I also will say I, I couldn't have done it without you and without the people in my community, my close friends that I trust to be able to say, hey, I want to die and I want to not want to die. Yeah. I come over to your house and make vests. Um. So, yeah. And for you to just make the space for that to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. And the people who get it. Yes. I remember being like, do you want me to come do your laundry? Like, when was the last time you've gone grocery shopping? Not even being like, oh, no, I'm so sorry. Like, have you talked to your therapist? It's like, I fucking know you have. Do you want me to come do your laundry so that, like, (laughs) you can put on clean underwear for today or no? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, clean underwear is important. If you are struggling with depression and you haven't washed your underwear, starting somewhere small, I mean, that's, I I shouldn't even say that because it sounds really trivializing, but starting somewhere small, like doing laundry or asking somebody to do laundry is at least it's movement, right? Inertia is such a killer of the climb out of depression. Yeah. The only thing I could do in like the first month where I was like really suicidal. They thought I was fucking, they thought I was bipolar. It was awful. The only thing I promised myself I would do is that I would feed myself. Like I need to eat. That was the only goal for every day. And sometimes I didn't even do it, but that's okay. Like I just, I had this one thing I had to do. And people who like can't get on disability for this stuff. That is so, so fucked. I'm so grateful that I have a doctor who was like, yes, I can see that you are dying. How can I support you? But a lot of people are afraid to put their patients on disability because of the lawsuit. It's like, I could not have done that job. I would have lost that job. Yeah. Yeah, that job was, oh my God. Very challenging to do in that emotional state. Yeah. Yeah. And look at us now. Um, Yeah. That's, That's where I'm at now. I really appreciate your asking me to do this. I mean, yeah, I chose you because I knew like you're the perfect epitome of, of just seeing the depths of pain from this aspect and then also seeing it in sobriety, like really show up the way that it did for me. And I mean, ours showed up differently though. Like it was different for me. I was so, I I got panicked and anxious about not getting out. I was like, I'm never going to get out. And like, just was like, it was just this big burden that I was never going to be done with. And, Mm. um, that's where that sinking deeper came in. And it's just like been one, like literally one thing at a time and also just trusting, like trusting in something. I remember I would like take a bath and listen to Abraham Hicks or, um, what is that bitch's name? Gabby Bernstein in the morning and just be like, it's got to get better. Like it has to, 
and just like listen to this stuff that was like their lives are better it'll get better I love that domino effect I guess like it was just the next best thing and then I did I started my master's in intuition and energy medicine and that's what I think really catapulted me into like the fifth dimension as they say (laughs) right well you started that and you thought oh this is where I belong yeah this this is right that feels really great it feels really encouraging um you it also feels good not only to be doing something that is satisfying intellectually and emotionally and you know sort of aligned with your values but it also feels good to be getting something right yeah ah I picked this and it's working so that's great it's working and I'm like one more fucking person's like it's what it's what I don't understand that's me trying to do a British accent are most of the people who don't understand what you're doing British yeah probably I just, I go, it's physics, okay? Everything is energy. Think about it like that. And they're like, there you go. I'm not grafting with that definition. Then they're definitely not. Well, you know what? It's California, man. Get with the program. (laughs) (laughs) It is very San Francisco thing. Um, Well, thank you. I mean, I'm blessed to know you and like fucking warrior for continuing to get yourself out of the depths of pain. Like it's very, very, very inspiring to see. And Thank uh, you I didn't so know where you were at with all of it, honestly. So it's yeah, good. I guess I haven't really been talking about it, but yeah. um, I'm appreciative that you asked me to discuss it here. Okay. Um, and um, I'm really proud of you too, because you've had such an intense year and you are moving through it with, you know, such grace. I know it's really painful. It can be really hard to identify that we're, moving through things with grace when they feel painful. It doesn't feel like we are, but you are. I see that now. I for sure see it. I'm like, damn, you did all that. And you're like still standing. And again, like, you know, I had those panic, like it's never going to be perfect, but the fact that I'm here and where I'm at, it's like, okay, everything tends to work out. It does. Oh my gosh. I'm so full of dried mango now. It's like bloating. I was like, shit, I got to eat dinner before this or else I'm going to like be so hungry. And now there's just like, <laughs> I got all these fucking like weird little mango crumbs on my. <laughs> oh, wow. The, they kind of look like orange peels. Gross. No, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. You're in your home. Your home is your sanctuary and you're allowed to eat dread mango and leave the rinds all over your desk. If you no, want to. you know about my thing about oranges, right? Oh, that's true. That's true. I, sorry, I forgot temporarily. And peaches. No, we're over the fuzzy fruit. Oh, really? I don't know. We'll see. I'm an independent woman now. We'll see. It's okay. I mean, nectarines are a great solution. You don't have to. That was the solution. Got it. Yes. No, fuzzy things are still not good, but we came up with a solution. Yeah. Nectarines. It's the same shit. Just no fuzz. (laughs) Problem solved. I'm just broken up at that, honestly. (laughs) Uh, Okay. I'm at 5% battery. I need to stop. I love you.